For the past two weeks, we have been traveling with Paul towards Jerusalem, where God has told him imprisonment and persecution await him. Paul marches on despite the bitterness that will greet him in that holy city. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks us, what is the chief end of man? And it answers that question in this way. Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We were not created for our own pleasure, but for the joy of obedience. And Paul embodies this reality as he travels to Jerusalem to glorify God even in his death. He's determined to fulfill the purpose for which God created him in both his living and in his dying. And this morning, we take our first steps into Jerusalem with Paul. But as we enter this city with Paul, we witness him do something unexpected, something troubling even, something we need to account for if we are to understand not only Paul, but the posture that Jesus demands of every Christian. Under pressure from the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, to prove that Paul not only respects but still observes and guards the Jewish law, Paul agrees to participate in a rite of purification, a week-long commitment that any Jew returning to Jerusalem from a foreign land is required to fulfill. Having interacted with Gentiles in a foreign land, the chances of contamination from those unclean people was high. So the law required Jews to purify themselves before they could enter the temple again. But the fact that Paul is willing to have anything to do with this is distressing and confusing. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, a man who has at great cost to himself devoted himself to convincing the Gentiles that Jesus has made them clean through his own death, now participates in a purification ritual that is predicated on the assumption that Gentiles are inherently unclean before God and purification is necessary after any interaction with them. How are we to understand Paul's actions? Does Paul contradict himself? Does the convicted, uncompromising, determined Paul have no fight left in him? After rebuking an apostle no less significant than Peter, is he now weakly folding to the influence of James? What is going on here? And anticipating our concern, our angst, by 1600 years is John Chrysostom, who urges calm. Condescension is what it is, he writes. Do not be alarmed. Chrysostom says that all that's going on here is nothing more than condescension on the part of Paul. He's merely bearing with the Jewish Christians who still have much to learn about the freedom that is theirs through Christ. And make no mistake about it, the objection to Paul was not coming from the elders or from James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. It was coming from the people, the parishioners. In verse 19, Paul relayed to the elders and to James what God had done through him among the Gentiles. And their response in verse 20 was to praise God for what he had been doing through Paul. They celebrated Paul's work. But at the end of verse 20 and on into verse 21, they tell Paul that there have been many Jews who have converted to Christianity in Jerusalem, and they are confused about what Paul teaches. They have been told about you is how they begin in verse 20. 
with, and with just those six words, listen to how they distance themselves and create a separation between themselves and what the people believe about Paul. The elders want to be sure that Paul knows he has their support. And the deception did not begin with them. They have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. These Jews who have become Christians are concerned about preserving their inherited, God-given even, cultural identity and practices. And notice in verse 21 that their concern is not what Paul is teaching the Gentiles, but what Paul is teaching the Jews who are among the Gentiles. They are afraid that in this conversion to Christianity, their people are losing those traditions that have made them unique for thousands of years now. And Paul is the primary culprit for this cultural atrophy that they fear. And in a way, their misunderstanding is understandable because it depended on a small but hugely significant distinction in Paul's teaching. Paul spent a lot of time talking about the law and Jewish cultural practices like circumcision or dietary restrictions, and his teaching was not that they were sinful and to be stopped immediately, but that they had been rendered unnecessary with the coming of Jesus. They are unnecessary, not wrong, The language that Paul used in his letter to the Colossians to describe these things is that they were shadows, but the substance is Jesus Christ. And it makes no sense to hold on to the shadow once the substance has come. It's like the child who has learned to ride a bike, a two-wheeler, but insists on keeping the training wheels on her bike. It's not morally wrong, but it is unnecessary and perhaps a bit silly. Paul is saying the same thing about the things that the Jews were concerned to preserve. Not wrong, but just unnecessary. And the Apostle Paul spoke of the entire law in his letter to the Galatians as a tutor, training us and preparing us to receive Jesus Christ. The law was a tutor, and Jesus was the subject of its many lessons. But once Jesus arrived and the subject was made fully apparent to our minds and hearts, the tutor became superfluous. It'd be a most unusual practice for the professor of advanced mathematics to continue meeting regularly with the tutor who helped her learn her multiplication tables when she was struggling with her calculations in the third grade. She herself is a master of the subject now. What need has she for her tutor any longer? Her progress does not make the tutor suddenly evil, but it does render the tutor unnecessary. And what is unnecessary will, over time, eventually fade away. Take the case of circumcision, for instance. This was specifically named in our passage as a point of concern for the Jews. The Old Testament passage read for you earlier recounted God giving circumcision to Abraham as a sign of his covenant with him and his children after him. And circumcision was the act of removing flesh from a body part so private that only your mama, your doctor, and your wife would know that it was gone. The rest of the world would have no idea. And so the act of circumcision was a tutor, training God's people to understand that what made them God's people was an alteration of a body part of theirs that was so secret that the world would be unable to tell by just looking at them from the outside. 
And its removal, similar to that act of physical circumcision, was not an act of their own doing. They were passive in their physical circumcision, and they would be passive in their spiritual circumcision as well. And this body part that needed surgery, Paul says in Romans 2, is the heart. There he writes that circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Physical circumcision of a sexual organ was devoid of meaning if it was not also accompanied by the spiritual circumcision of the heart to which it was pointing. When Jesus came, we learned through his teaching that what matters is an individual's heart, not whether they bear any particular cultural marker on their body. And in this way, the gospel was opened up to everyone, to Jew or to Gentile, to to Greek or to Roman, to male or to female. Circumcision was not necessary for faith. So Paul did not include circumcision as a requirement when preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. He wanted to spare the Gentiles the baggage that the Jews were slowly and sometimes reluctantly shedding as they became Christians and came to understand their new identity in Christ. Augustine, in his commentary on this passage, discussed the role of circumcision in the life of the Christian. This was to be enough praise for it, he writes, that it was not to be avoided and despised as idolatry was. But it was to have no further development and was not to be thought necessary as if salvation either depended on it or could not be had without it. That is what some heretics thought who wanted to be both Jews and Christians and could be neither Jews nor Christians. And Augustine is pretty hard on the people who had misunderstood Paul. But for Paul, we see his concern for these people who misunderstood him was so great that he was willing to bear with them and to participate in a Jewish rite of purification in the hope that they might not reject Jesus in favor of Moses and thus be lost. And the elders of the church doubled down in Jerusalem in verse 25 on the ruling that came out of the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 in favor of the Gentiles declaring that compliance with Jewish rituals like circumcision and feast days was not a prerequisite for faith in Christ. The official ruling was upheld and reiterated, and so Paul felt that he could do this act of purification without violating either the gospel or his conscience. His actions were guided by his concern for the unity of the church, the purity of the gospel, the pursuit of their souls, and the integrity of his own conscience. And so we learn from Paul the posture that must be adopted as we live together as brothers and sisters in the Christian life. Not just within First Presbyterian Church, but also outside of our church and our denomination. With the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church that we confess every Sunday. There's a flexibility that is required of us as we bear with those who differ from us on those matters that are not essential to faith in Christ, like whether we dunk or sprinkle people in baptism, whether we have bishops or elders or a pope even, whether the pastor wears a tie or blue jeans, or whether we believe God still gives the gift of speaking in tongues to his church or not. These are matters about which it's okay to have opinions, fixed opinions even, but following Paul's lead into the discomfort of condescension, these are not matters which we can allow to divide us. 
for the world is watching, and the unity of the church is what Jesus spent some of his last moments on earth praying for. Because the unity of such a disparate group of people around the person of Jesus Christ makes him shine all the brighter in this fading world. But a call to condescension is a dangerous one if it's not also paired with the demand that we know the gospel and ourselves so well that we can differentiate when something is an act of condescension and when something actually compromises the integrity of the gospel or the unity of the church, endangers the souls of others, or violates our own consciences. Paul was put at ease by the elders who re-articulated their commitment to the verdict of the Jerusalem council that circumcision and other Jewish practices are not necessary for faith in Jesus Christ. And it was that recommitment to truth that gave him the peace to lovingly and patiently condescend to those who were confused. Without that, Paul would have never agreed never have agreed to participate in the purification rite because it would have confused and compromised the gospel. Nothing is necessary for salvation except for faith in Jesus Christ and his work on your behalf. Nothing can be added to him or serve as his preface. It is Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. But if you do not know the borders of the orthodox, historic, and apostolic teaching that we have inherited, then what is your compass? Where are you grounded? What is the source of your conviction? The world would have you condescend until you're not a Christian any longer. But we must know what we believe and the boundaries of our faith lest we act in ignorance and become captivated by persuasive arguments that pretend to teach truth but are in reality peddling a lie. Paul experienced a lot of pressure in his life. But because he was convinced in his mind of the gospel, he never folded to the agendas of those around him. And you too will experience pressure in this world. The pre-research center that I uh, sent a report that I referenced earlier in our service has demonstrated the continual decline of Christianity in America. Over the past decade, the number of people living in America who identify as Christian is down 12% to 65%, while the number of those who identify as either atheist or agnostic or nothing in particular has risen 9% over that same decade to now sit at 26% of the population. And these trends are growing in pace. And as Christianity declines in America, the challenge of remaining faithful to Jesus will only become more difficult. And with that decline, the calls to compromise will grow. But how can you stand firm unless you know where you stand and on what you stand? And how can you condescend to remain united with Christians different from you unless you know what will both preserve and promote unity in the church? We must know what it is we believe. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul said that it is the goal of every Christian and the responsibility of the church to assist them to grow in maturity, in faith, in knowledge, and in unity in Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, 
In his many travels, Paul spent months and months and months at sea on a boat. And more than once, he had the experience of being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by the winds. But the greatest comfort in those circumstances is an anchor that is firmly rooted in the ground, keeping the boat from danger and shipwreck. And my friends, in this world, we need an anchor to ground us in the waves and protect us in the winds. What is it that anchors your heart and your soul? We are in the process of constructing an anchor in the lives of the children at First Presbyterian Church. We are doing this through catechesis, right? So that if they are, if they're ever asked or ask themselves, what is my hope in life? Or why do I exist? Why am I even here? They have the language to respond. It's in them. They may sing their response, but it's in them. But catechesis and scripture memorization and reading the Bible is not just for children, but for all of you. It's never too late to be catechized, however old you are. Join us. For we are attempting to navigate the murky waters of this world in faithfulness to Christ. But it requires intentionality and time and effort. And without devotion, there's likely to be desertion. But let us cling to God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, so that the winds may blow and the waves may buffet. But we remain unmoved in the unity and integrity of the holy, apostolic, and Catholic Church which we confess. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.